Good morning, everyone. All right. Good to hopefully you uh, had a chance to enjoy the party last night, and thank you for uh, coming this morning. My name is uh, Camille Samaha. I'm with the uh, Worldwide Public Sector Solutions Architecture Team, and very honored and lucky to have Kartik uh, Viswanath, uh, Product Manager for EC2 Networking, uh, with us today. We're going to take a, uh, a look back at uh, Amazon Virtual Private Cloud over the last 12 months and see what features we've introduced, go into detail into some use cases that these features have enabled, and, uh, and then just uh, you know, take a deep dive and talk about a couple of neat features that uh, we, uh, and particularly one that we launched yesterday. Um, and Kartik is going to get us started. All right, thanks, Camille. So quick show of hands. How many of you are um, rusty or not too familiar with VPC? Not familiar with VPC. So there's a few hands raising. Um, for folks who are not too familiar with VPC, um, we're probably going to be running through some concepts of VPCs fairly fast. Um, Folks who are familiar with VPC, so don't worry, we're not going to be spending too much time with the concepts, but it'll just be a quick refresher and more along the lines to help us build a story on what we've launched. Um, if you want to learn more about VPC, there's a Net 201 session that's actually currently happening as we speak, but um, all our sessions will be available on YouTube. Give it a week or two. Um, that's one uh, session that I strongly encourage folks uh, because there we actually do a good deep dive into all the concepts of, uh, of VPC. The various building blocks of the VPC is dealt with in a lot more detail in that session. Um, with that said, let's get started. <clears throat> VPC. Back in 2009 was when we launched VPC. Prior to VPC, we had what we now call as a classic. Um, this is basically, as you can see here, it's like one flat network. Um, every instance has a private and, pu and public IP address. Um, the addresses never overlap, so anytime, anytime two instances want to talk to each other across accounts, it's simple, like just talk to each other. That was classic. And then in 2009, we launched VPC. Um, VPC, as the name indicates, virtual private cloud, you can create your own virtual network. A um, couple of uh, data points with VPC is, if you have an account that you've created after December 4th, 2013, you are running on VPC. This is one question that comes up quite a bit. Um, how do I know if my, uh, if, I, if, if my account can support Classic or VPC? Simple rule of thumb. If you created the account after December 4th, 2013, it's, it's a VPC account. Um, another uh, data point is all new regions moving forward will be supporting only VPC instances. We will not support classic instances. Um, actually, even some of the regions that we recently launched, um, this is US East 2, um, Frankfurt, um, as well as the region in Mumbai, these regions support VPC-based instances only. We do not support classic in those uh, regions. With VPC, um, what we'll be covering today is uh, three building blocks for VPC. The first one, addressing. Um, how do you address uh, yeah, instances in a VPC? We'll talk about uh, security um, and what are the new features that we've launched in that space. Um, and then finally, Camille will talk about connectivity. So we'll spend a lot of time um, in, in connectivity. What, what's the new we've launched relating to connectivity in a VPC? So first one. The, the fundamental building block for VPC when you talk of addressing is the CIDR block. Um, as you guys probably already know, um, CIDR is basically giving you that range of IP addresses that a VPC can support. Um, there's probably two best practices that I'd like to call out here. So, so in this example here for the CIDR block that you have for your VPC is at 10.10 10 slash 16. There's two components here. One is the actual 10.10, .10, which is basically the, um, the address space. Um, the, the reason this is critical is when you start having multiple VPCs, and which Camille will go into more details, um, you, you, if the VPCs want to talk to each other, you have to think about overlapping CIDR blocks. So that's one aspect so you want, that you have to keep in mind. The second one is the slash 16. That basically is telling me what is the size of a VPC. And this is probably something in my two and a half years here is stripped a lot of customers because um, there, there's two things that will happen. We've seen customers go define a slash 16, and then the VPC, the number of instances in the VPC is like 
50 or 100. And then here they have a VPC from a uh, cider allocation perspective. The usage is, super, is very low. And where it becomes more interesting is when you have a hybrid type of deploy, uh, deployment, which is you have um, you have workloads running on-prem and you have workloads running on AWS. Uh, many times you have these IT administrators are allocating CIDR blocks for your uh, AWS. And now we've had customers come to us and say, wait, we, we created this last 16 and our usage is super low and our IT administrator on-prem is not giving us more uh, CIDR blocks because our usage is super low. So, so definitely take the time when you are creating your CIDR space for a VPC. You want to think about the addressing in general across VPCs. Um, the second thing you definitely want to think about is what is the size of the VPC you want? Um, another, uh, the, the, the counter story with the slash 16 is I've had customers come and define a slash 27 and then they've, oh, I've, I've run out of addresses. That gets a little bit, a little bit more interesting because now they have to create another VPC. So the same service is running across VPCs and now they have to start worrying about communication between the two VPCs. So definitely when you're creating the CIDR space, do take the time to think about what is the size I need and the IP addressing. Pay attention to these because this will uh, help you in the, in the longer run. So that's, uh, that's on CIDRs. The next um, ne next aspect with the, with the VPC is this notion of availability zones. Um, today we have 14 regions. Um, every region has multiple availability zones. Think of availability zone more as, a, as an isolation boundary, right? Um, so within, um, definitely if you're, if you're having an HA type of service, you, uh, our recommendation to customers is you want your VPC to be running at least two availability zones. It's definitely a, a smarter thing to do when you want to have HA. We talked about ciders uh, and uh, what do you do with these ciders. So it's, now you're going to start breaking these ciders into what we call as subnets. Um, with, with subnets, one of the uh, practices we've seen is, um, Customers use subnets as an isolation boundary as well. So wherein, what I mean by that is I can have a service that is running within a subnet. So I start running services within a subnet. That's one way of we've seen a lot of customers um, allocate subnets. So that's uh, at a high level in terms of uh, with, with ciders. So now once you have subnets, obviously the next thing is route tables. So with every VPC, there's a route table. Um, like here in this example, you can see for the 10 dot, the target is local, which basically means um, all these addresses are local to the VPC. Uh, quickly, one more one more aspect with the VPC is we also support DNS. Uh, what we do with the DNS is you, actually, you can actually have the EC2 uh, DNS name servers. The reason I mentioned that, that's a segue to our what we've launched new in the last 12 months. First, let's look like we've launched a service in October of this year, which is basically adding DNS support to this, the EC2 DNS support for non-RFC 1918. Let's first look at what is non-RFC 1918 addresses. Your um, IETF, your Internet Engineering Task Force, uh, they basically said, hey, we need these address space that are non-internet routable. This was, originally this was uh, designed to protect the, uh, the, uh, the rate at which the IP addresses were being used. Um, so they, they pick these four addresses, and uh, another in simple layman terms, you can think of this as your private addresses. This is what you see most organizations use for their private networks. It's your 10 dot slash 8 address, 172, as well as the 192 space. These are the three blocks um, of addresses that are used for, um, which are not internet audible. So prior to October of this year, um, we've had some customers, if you define a CIDR block that's outside of these three, and if you wanted to use an EC2 DNS uh, server, that was not going to work because we were not going to resolve those addresses. The workaround was customers had to actually use their own DNS, uh, DNS servers. So that was this feature will now remove the need for you to run uh, your own custom DNS servers. You can actually use the EC2 DNS servers. So now we, we will resolve all addresses. We're not restricted just to the uh, 1918. <clears throat> Here's a quick, uh, just an example of uh, how if you use the dig. Let's see if I can get this. So if I do a dig trying to get, uh, to get the uh, uh, DNS address, you can see this is the DNS host name. Um, here, there's two callouts that I want to make here is, um, one is you can actually see for this DNS host name just getting resolved to the actual address. 
as well as the dot .2 address. So this this dot .2 over here. Um, so very quick on that. The, I mentioned you have the EC2 DNS uh, servers are supported uh, as in the EC2 network. Um, what we do is we take your CIDR address and we use the dot .2 address of your uh, CIDR address as the DNS server name. All right, um, so on to the next topic, um, real quick, on security. So um, with security, we, we, we support what's called as a security groups, as the name indicates. Um, it's basically a, a, a group of where you have instances which have a very, uh, I would say, a common purpose. That's defined as part of a security group. Real quick on security groups, so you can have, uh, there are rules in a security group. This is, it's either slash 32, so you can have, you can define slash 32 rules, or you can define cider blocks in a security group, or you can actually reference other security group as well, which is particularly more convenient because um, as you start adding more rules, you don't have to go and update every single security group. So um, a very common practice we've seen with security groups is customers reference other security groups. That helps you from an operation standpoint. It Manageability is a lot more simpler. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another point with security groups is um, it, it is stateful. Um, and a good example would be is like you have ingress and egress rules. Let's say if you send a query out for a YAM update, when you get a response back, um, because I actually am doing, I'm aware of the connection, I don't need an ingress security group rule for the traffic to come back. So by default with security groups, um, it is blocked at the beginning. So you have to start opening the holes. Think of it as it's completely blocked with the rules is where you're opening up holes to let traffic in and out. So that's the quick update on security groups. Uh, for completeness sake, we also have network ACLs. Um, it's similar to the ACLs that you, you're probably familiar with in the networking world. Um, the difference, key difference here is ACLs are, are stateless, whereas security groups are stateful. So what have we added in this space? Um, previously, you had the limit on security groups. This is probably one of the complaints we've heard from a lot of customers saying, hey, I'm running into a limit of 100 security groups per VPC. So we've increased that limit. Um, the, now the number is you can create up to 500 security groups in a VPC. Um, I, I want to spend a few minutes talking about security group limits. Um, the reason is this comes up quite a bit in terms of um, from a best practices perspective. Real, real quick, um, so we talked about the groups. Um, there are two other concepts. One is the number of rules per security group. You have um, you can have 50 rules per, sec uh, per security group. And you can also have five, the default is five security groups per network interface. A key number that you're going to be looking for is the, the multiplication of 50 and 5, which is effectively the number of rules per network interface. So you, you take your rules per security group and your security group per network interface, you multiply the two, that's the 250. And this 250 is the magical number. Um, we've had a request where customers want more rules. So anytime I, we end up increasing your rules, we reduce the number of security groups that you have because the number that we're shooting for is you can't exceed 250. So now you can start playing with math. You can go 50 times 5. So you can go, um, I can have 100 rules and two security groups, or I can go 10 security groups and I can have 25 rules. So th these are the two variables you're going to be playing with. Um, but one limit is in terms of security groups per network interface, we cannot go beyond 16. So that's a hard limit that we have in terms of security groups per network interface. <clears throat> One very important point is, when, again, when you're defining rules, please take the time to think about your IP addressing. The reason I mention this is I want to say at least about 75% of the times when customers call me and say, hey, I need you to increase my rules. Um, when we looked at their config, what we found is they've defined a whole bunch of slash 32 rules, which could have easily been aggregated into a CIDR block, right? And we just go through their configuration, and in a matter of minutes, we end up reducing the number of rules they need, and they're happy. Um, the reason I mention this is I've run into scenarios where I get, I get paged on Friday at 5 p.m. and saying, that, hey, I need you to increase my rules because we're launching the service on Monday, and we're blocked. So... Uh, definitely take the time. This is another area where I would recommend you guys take the time to think about how you're defining the rules. Um, this goes back to the addressing because um, you, you can be smart about how you do your addressing. Um, so wherein you, you, you're not forced to define these whole bunch of slash 32 rules 
Instead, you can actually combine them, aggregate them into uh, into blocks. So this way, you reduce the number of rules that you need. All right. Um, so with that, let me hand over for the next piece, which is connectivity to Camille. Thank you, Kardec. All right. Now that we have our VPC subnets and EC2 instances in this virtual private cloud, we want to make use of, uh, of this network and expose, for example, your web applications to the outside world. Now, this is where the concept of Internet Gateway quickly uh, uh, talk about it. Uh, it is a VPC construct that is um, highly available, highly scalable, redundant service that we make available, and its main purpose is to provide connectivity between your resources in your VPC and the Internet. Uh, so if you break, if you really break it down, it does uh, two primary functions. Uh, as Kardec said, you have routing tables in your VPC and your subnets. The, I, the IGW or the Internet Gateway provides you a target in your routing table to which you can then put routing table entries. Uh, and it also provides that connectivity to EC2 instances that you have allocated public IP addresses to. In this example, 54.4.5.6. So if you have that EIP and that IGW in a particular subnet, that's what we offer. You often hear the, uh, the name public subnet. That's what makes a public subnet, is you have an IGW in the routing table and you have an elastic IP address assigned to one or more instances in that, in that subnet. Uh, private subnet is exactly the opposite. It does not have those two uh, constructs, which is the IGW or the elastic IP address. So here's a look at the routing table. You'll see the uh, local target, which primarily uh, says that all traffic within the VPC stays within the VPC. And then the default route, in a plain English, is stating that any traffic not destined to my VPC will go to the Internet through the IGW. And you'll see the target is the IG, uh, IGW ID. All right, so what about those instances in your private subnets that need access to things like Linux repositories? We don't want to expose them and give them elastic IP addresses or public IP addresses in the best practice, for example, for our database layer, you definitely don't want to have internet connectivity to the, to the uh, database layer. So typically uh, what has been uh, a common solution is to utilize an EC2 instance running uh, NAT service, such for Linux uh, IP tables. And then you assign an elastic IP address to that instance. And then you, in effect, point the default route from your private subnets to the NAT instance ID, as I'm showing in this example. And that pretty much what is saying that anything that is not destined to my VPC will flow to that NAT instance running the uh, not service to translate your traffic and connect you to the uh, to the internet. Now, in December of last year, we introduced the VPC NAT gateway service. This eliminates the need for you to set up EC2 instances, configure them for with IP tables or your your favorite NAT uh, service, and worry about availability, scalability of that, of that instance itself with the NAT gateways, a fully managed service that AWS takes care of availability and, scale, and scaling for you. So similarly to the EC2 instance, once you launch the NAT gateway, uh, you will assign a public IP address to it, and then you will use it as a routing target in your private subnets routing tables to send, for in this example, the default route will point to the NAT instance ID. And it'll have the prefix of NAT 
as, as the, uh, and it'll be available to you in a drop-down uh, as a target uh, in your routing table. So let's take a, a little closer look, uh, uh, you know, to the NAT gateway service. As I mentioned, it's a fully managed service, and uh, you do, it does require you to allocate a public IP address so it can communicate with the outside world. Now, it's important to note that they, once you launch a NAT gateway, it's launched in a specific availability zone. And it is a highly available service, so you don't need to worry about uh, configuring high availability or redundancy for that service. We take care of that for you. But if you're architecting or if you wish to have an architecture that is not uh, zonal dependent or it's not you, know, you need to have the architecture be uh, persistent across availability zones, you need to launch a, a NAT gateway for each availability zone in your, in your architecture. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the primary benefit of the service is the simplicity of it. We take care of all the scalability. It is a uniform offering, and by that, uh, I will compare it to an EC2 instance solution. If you launch an EC2 instance as a as an at instance, you have to worry about all right, which instance size do I pick? And uh, once you reach a point where you're saturating uh, that particular instance and you need to increase the size, you have to worry about scaling up, and you have to do it yourself. And you also have to worry about single points of failure. You want to deploy a solution to ensure that if that NAT instance fails, you automatically bring up another instance, shift your route tables to that instance. So there's some complexity in setting up uh, the high availability. With the NAT gateway service, we automatically take care of that for you. It's highly redundant within the availability zone itself. Uh, and from a performance perspective, uh, the NAT gateway service supports bursts of up to 10 gigabits per second for TCP, UDP, and ICMP traffic. And if you, need, if you do need or have a requirement for more traffic than 10 gig, uh, then you can easily launch multiple NAT gateways and have additional 10 gigs per gateway. So uh, the, there's no limit or if there is a limit, it's a large number of NAT, of NAT gateway services that you could launch. And from a security perspective, you can leverage not, network access control list to uh, uh, authorize inbound and outbound traffic at the subnet level. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to defy the uh, demo guys and see if I can do a live demo. If not, I do have backup uh, screenshots. So bear with me. I just want to show you how easy it is to launch a, uh, a NAT gateway. So if you go to the AWS console and you just need to navigate to the uh, VPC console, and on the left-hand side you'll see the NAT gateways, all you need to do is, you know, click the button to create the NAT gateway, you do need to associate the NAT gateway with a public subnet. A public subnet means that one that has an IGW attached to it in the routing tables. And in this case, I have them labeled to make it easier for me to, uh, to select. The next step is to uh, allocate a public IP address. If you already have one in your account, it'll be available in the drop-down list. Or if you don't, you can easily click the Create New EIP button to make one available to uh, assign to the NAT gateway service. And off you go. It doesn't take that long to create. It's done. The only thing left at this point is to use that NAT gateway as a target in your routing table. So let's go and select uh, one of my VPCs. Let me make sure. I Pick the right one. Here we go. This one does not have a default route, so it cannot communicate with the outside world. So you just uh, add another route. You put your default route. 
And here's the NAT gateway as a target in your routing table. And we're done. Now, all instances in your private subnet have outbound access to the internet through the NAT gateway. And it's important to note that it's outbound access only. The NAT gateway does not support connections being initiated from the outside in. So, let me switch back. And I'm going to go through the uh, backup slides real quick. Here we go. So let's take a, a step back and take a, a look at the differences between EC2 uh, NAT instances and the NAT uh, gateway service. Uh, with the EC2-based NAT solution, you have full access to the operating system. What that means is you can configure the NAT service any way that you wish. You have the full control to configure uh, uh, that service. The downside, as I mentioned, is there's complexity to ensure high availability. There's complexity to ensure scaling of that solution to meet your bandwidth requirements. Uh, on the other hand, with a NAT gateway service, the software running on those uh, on those on the service itself is optimized for uh, for NAT. Uh, it is fully managed and scaled by AWS on your behalf. But you do need to keep in mind, as I mentioned, it's only outbound traffic, so you cannot set up port forwarding to like in a DMZ environment in your. Uh, a traditional data center where you do port forwarding to a service behind it. This is outbound only NAT service. And another thing that uh, also is uh, worth pointing out, it does not support TCP and ICMP packet fragmentation. Okay? All right. I am going to quickly talk about uh, VPC uh, endpoints for S3. Uh, traditionally, I, th I talked about it in a similar session last year, but I'm only going to spend just a few seconds on this. Traditionally, to access your public service endpoints for S3, you have to have an IGW uh, in your subnet uh, and an elastic IP address, or you have to go through a NAT, uh, a NAT uh, gateway service, as an example. Now, with VPC endpoints for S3, it uh, gives you the ability to... Uh, reach your uh, uh, S3 buckets and objects through that, uh, the endpoint itself without having to assign a public IP address or an IGW in your VPC. So the traffic will flow to uh, your S3 resources without having to attach the IGW. Now, if you look at the routing table in this case, the VPC endpoint is a routing target that starts, well, has a prefix of VPCE for VPC endpoint, and you can add it to the routing tables in your subnets to route traffic to the uh, S3 resources. Now, the service comes with a rich set of controls from a security perspective. You're able to leverage S3 bucket policies on the S3 uh, endpoint side, and you can also define and attach IAM policies on the endpoint to limit which buckets or objects are accessible through that endpoint itself. So a rich set of uh, security comes along uh, with the, with the uh, VPC endpoint service. And quickly, another point, as you'll see, the destination in the routing table is what we refer to as a prefix list. What that means, the S3 endpoints are public endpoints, and we have multiple IP addresses associated with those endpoints. And over time, those might change. The prefix list is a mechanism to shield any of those changes from you. It's completely transparent to you. You use the prefix list as a destination, and you don't need to worry about what's going on as far as which IP address CIDR blocks we assign to our S3 endpoints. It automatically takes care of that for you. So it makes it a lot simpler to operate and manage. Now, the reason I spent a little bit of time on S3 endpoints is in combination with a NAT gateway that enabled our several of our service teams to develop features that 
um, they were not able to do prior to having those uh, two capabilities. I'm going to spend just a little bit of time talking about those use cases. First one is the ability to launch Amazon EMR clusters and private subnets. EMR is the managed uh, Hadoop service that we offer uh, for data analytics. Prior to uh, this launch, you had to put, launch your cluster in a public subnet because EMR has this minimum requirement to be able to access S3 buckets to be able to put service logs uh, in there. Now, with the S3 endpoints being available, what we've done is the service places an ENI uh, in your VPC that is owned by you but managed by the EMR service to provide connectivity uh, uh, from and or between the EMR web service and your cluster running on EC2 instances. And uh, with that conduit in place, then we can leverage S3 endpoints to access uh, S3 objects and resources through that endpoint without having to define an internet gateway. Now, there are features with EMR, such as EMRFS, which is the EMR file system. That requires access to both S3 and DynamoDB. DynamoDB is a NoSQL managed service that we provide. In that case, in addition to having the S3 endpoints to access the S3 objects, you need a NAT gateway or even an EC2 instance running NAT. Uh, that would work as well to be able to access the public endpoints for DynamoDB. But regardless, your EC2 cluster is running in the private subnet. Another capability that uh, the VPC features enabled is allowing your Lambda functions. And Lambda, uh, in effect, it's just the ability to have your code defined as functions run on AWS without having to have EC2 instances. And those functions are triggered by events such as changes to an S3 bucket or maybe a DynamoDB table. Super powerful if you want to run microservices or serverless uh, architecture. With, um, I believe it was in February of 2016, we launched uh, support for uh, accessing resources within your VPC from your AWS Lambda functions. Again, it's leveraging ENI uh, to give you access to resources such as your RDS uh, databases, an Elasticash node, or a Redshift uh, data warehouse uh, uh, services. It also allows you to access services that you might be running in a private subnet within your VPC itself. And again, uh, since we are within the VPC, we can leverage S3 endpoints to reach data repositories running uh, on S3. And if you do want to have access from the Lambda function to uh, public endpoints or the Internet itself, then you can leverage NAT gateway to reach those resources from within uh, Lambda flowing through your private VPC. One last use case it's, uh, that was launched recently in, sep uh, in September, I believe. It is uh, Redshift Enhanced VPC Routing. Uh, what that does is allows, or when you turn on Enhanced VPC Routing with Redshift, and like I mentioned, Redshift is a data, managed data warehouse service that we offer. Any copy or unload traffic is then restricted to flow to the S3 repositories through your private subnet. And if those repositories are uh, in S3 buckets in the same region, that traffic is forced to go through the S3 endpoint. If they are in a different region, that traffic is restricted to flow through your private subnet and leverage the NAT gateway service to reach those buckets. So, uh, so lots of capabilities we were able to develop because of the features that VPC have, has made available over the past 12 months.
All right. Let's uh, take a quick look. Uh, uh, we've talked about Internet access and Internet communications from your VPC. What about communicating between two VPCs themselves? A VPC is a virtual private cloud, and by default it has no access to the outside world. Uh, with VPC peering, it gives you the ability to peer two VPCs and, and have them communicate with each other without having to flow through an IGW on each side. The way it works, and again, this is just a quick 30-second uh, review, is uh, let's say VPC A owner would initiate a peering request to the owner of VPC B. Now, VPC B can be in the same account or a completely separate AWS account. If the recipient owner accepts that request, then a peering uh, connection is made and the two VPCs can communicate to each other. And if there's, of course, the requirement that they, don't, they cannot have overlapping IP addresses. And just, again, taking a quick look at VPCA's routing table, you uh, would put the destination as the CIDR block of the remote uh, VPC, and the target is a, uh, is a peering point itself. It has a prefix of PCX. All right? And basically, in English, any traffic destined to that remote VPC will flow through that peering connection. Now, in March, we uh, launched the support to be able to reference security groups between peered VPC. Now, that's super important. I think Kartik mentioned it before. You, prior to this release, you had to, uh, and I'll put it up there, you had to use CIDR blocks from the remote VPC to try to restrict inbound and outbound traffic to particular resources in VPC A, for example. That could get very, really cumbersome. For example, you add a different subnet in VPC B, you add additional EC2 instances, and you have to keep on continually update your uh, security group rules with those CIDR, uh, with those CIDR blocks. With this new capability, now all you need to do is put the resources uh, in the remote VPC in a security group, and then you can reference that security group uh, in your rules in VPCA. Greatly simplifies uh, the uh, management of your security groups with VPC peering. Another uh, feature that we launched in July is the ability to support uh, DNS resolution across peered VPCs. Uh, by that, let's take an example in VPCB on or the right-hand side where you have an EC2 instance with a public IP address. If it has a public IP address, it's going to have a public DNS host name. If you do a, a DNS lookup from the left VPC, this is before the feature was released, using the public DNS host name of the EC2 in the peered VPC, you're going to get the public IP address back. Since it's a public IP address, is not any traffic flowing to that IP address will not traverse the peering because the peering is between the private siders between the two VPCs. With this new feature, you're able to leverage the split horizon uh, capabilities of the native EC2 DNS service. And the DNS lookup at this point will give you the private IP address, and then you can uh, leverage the peering connection. So this feature greatly simplifies your DNS configuration in a peered VPC environment. All right, something that we are really excited about IPv6 support for EC2 instances running inside of a VPC. This was launched yesterday in the Ohio region. And regions all around the world are to follow. Uh, so uh, they're coming soon. So super excited about it. It took a lot of hard work uh, from the VPC team and EC2 networking team to get this released. So uh, there were two sessions that were opened up uh, yesterday, an hour after we launched this. 
One was an introduction to IPv6, and the other one was a deep dive. Both of them are going to be available uh, online within the next week or two, including the slides themselves. So that will give you the ability to go in there and take a deeper dive look. I'm only going to spend a few minutes today uh, on this just to give you the high-level uh, uh, feature set that comes with this launch. Now, this is a dual-stack uh, solution for now, so you have, you'll have IPv4 and IPv6 in your VPC. When you, want, when you enable IPv6, we're going to assign a slash 54 CIDR block of globally unique addresses. That's a lot of IP addresses. Uh, and each subnet will get a slash 64. A slash 64 has that many IP addresses, I'm not going to even attempt to read it. <laughs> so that's too many commas for me. I don't even know what that is. Trill, I don't know. So that's just a lot of IP addresses. Uh, you'll be able to leverage uh, the same security features that you're familiar with, security groups, knuckles, and, uh, and flow logs. From a connectivity perspective, uh, communications within the VPC between instances can happen. Of course, that's supported with, uh, at IPv6, so using the IPv6 stack, leveraging the Internet gateway to communicate with the outside world. This also supports uh, direct connect to your data centers, uh, as well as VPC peering. Uh, there's this concept that we've introduced of ingress-only Internet gateway. With IPv6, there's, there's no NAT. All addresses are globally unique uh, that we assign. So we wanted to uh, replicate the ability for you to have private subnets and only establish outbound communication to the Internet. And this is where the Internet only Internet, egress only Internet gateway con serve, uh, or construct comes into play. I'm going to have an illustration of it. I'm a visual person, so maybe some of you are as well. I'll have it in, on the next slide to explain it a little more. Now, I just want to point out uh, some things that are not yet supported as of, as of the launch, but as things that are, we are working on. Those are VPC endpoints, don't support IPv6 today, VPN connections, and DNS resolution. So uh, there are more things uh, that we are actively working on and hopefully we'll have available to you uh, uh, shortly. Um, Another point, IPv6 is supported by uh, new generation EC2 instances with a couple of exceptions, and those are M3 and G2 uh, instance families. So otherwise, other than those exceptions, all current generation instances support IPv6. Let's take a look now at the visual representation. Here's a common setup where on the left-hand side you have a public subnet with uh, EC2 instances that have EIPs assigned to them, and they're able to reach the Internet uh, leveraging the Internet gateway. You also have uh, a NAT gateway service, which provides outbound connectivity to EC2 instances that are residing on the, in the private subnets, in this case on the right-hand side. With, if you enable IPv6, Basically, the VPC itself will get a slash 56, and each subnet will get, will get its own unique slash 64. And then uh, the EC2 instances running in the public subnet will get this globally unique IP address. Since we have an Internet gateway associated uh, with that uh, public subnet, you'll be able to leverage... Uh, that IGW as a target in your routing table to have traffic to and from uh, the Internet using IPv6 to that instance. Now, the uh, EC2 instances in the private subnet will also get a globally unique IP address. But since there's no IGW associated with the routing table of that subnet, it cannot communicate to uh, the Internet and connections from the Internet cannot be initiated into it. But we cannot leverage the NAT gateway to have access 
to Linux repositories, for example. This is where egress-only Internet Gateway comes into play. You can set, uh, set one up and give outbound-only access to EC2 instances in your private subnet to the outside world. Okay? Let's take a quick look at the routing tables. You'll see uh, support both IPv4 and IPv6 destinations and in the routing table on the, on the public subnet on the left-hand side, both IPv4 and IPv6 have a target of the IGW ID. On the uh, private subnet for IPv4, the default route points to the NAT gateway ID. With IPv6, it'll point to the egress-only Internet gateway ID. So fully supported today in Ohio, other regions to come soon. With that, I'm going to hand it to Kartek to talk about EC2 Classic. Quick raise of hands. How many of you are still using Classic instances? So a few of them. All right. Um, back in 2015, um, uh, when customers wanted to move from Classic to VPC, um, um, Actually, last, I would say last one and a half years, you've seen quite a few customers move from Classic to VPC. So we went almost two years back. Um, so the way customers had moved from Classic to VPC was um, you basically are setting up a public address and there's an IGW on the VPC and using public IP, the Classic used to communicate to VPC instances. Obviously, it's not the uh, most effective way because you're going on the Internet. Um, so Classic Link effectively was uh, unloving, but private IP communication between classic and VPC instances. Um, what we did last year was we launched this feature called um, for DNS resolution over, uh, of your public host names to your private IP addresses over classic links. So the idea here is um, if you have workloads sitting on classic um, that is, that's running an EC2 DNS, uh, running EC2 DNS, so you, you, you're resolving these addresses uh, using DNS. And you have the same thing on VPC. Now, when these two instances are talking to each other, and if you want um, an instance, a VPC instance trying to resolve to an EC2, uh, uh, resolve EC2 DNS hostname, um, and if it was going to go over classic link, um, what we would return is the public address, which is obviously not the effect, most effective way uh, how you want to communicate, because when you want to use the private IP for the classic VPC communication. Um, with this uh, DNS resolution over classic link, what it allows you to give, gives you is more flexibility when you're um, moving load workloads from classic to VPC. Uh, another feature that we've launched is uh, classic link or peering. I'll spend just a couple of minutes on this. Um, so what you see in the screen here is your classic, when you're having classic and talking to VPC, you have classic link for communication. Uh, if you look at the VPC's routing table, you basically have a, 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 a route a route entry for 10 slash 8 pointing to the classic link. Um, one thing we've seen with customers when you want uh, VPCs talking to each other, or VPC peering is obviously the preferred way of communication. So um, you, you, when, we, when, when you were trying to move workloads from classic to VPC, what we wanted to uh, set up was a natural architecture for in your VPC world, where you're using VPC peering to talk uh, for workloads within a VPC. Um, but as you're moving workloads from classic to VPC, um, with, with classic, you could, with a classic instance, could only do a classic link to a single VPC. Now, you, you, when you have an architecture with VPC peering, you obviously would want your classic instance to be able to talk to multiple VPCs. And this is where a classic link over peering actually comes in uh, handy, where now I have this one VPC that I'm classic linking my classic instance with, but then I have VPC peering set up on the other side, which is the natural architecture I want to get to. And as I'm moving workloads, I, it's, it gives me the smooth migration from classic to VPC. Um, I'll spend, uh, this is a very interesting use case. Um, how many of you all attended the Netflix session yesterday? Okay, so let's see if a few hands. Um, real quick, um, in a couple of minutes, what was presented. Netflix, back in 2008, they had a database issue, which they were running their own uh, private data centers. Um, they had a database issue, and that's when they decided, let's move to AWS. Um, so they started their journey in 2008. Um, they moved to Classic, um, and they, by 2012, they were running 100% on AWS. 
Um, and 2009, when, once we launched VPC, they started seeing there were benefits with, to moving to VPC. Um, about a year, slightly more than a year back, they started this journey of let's move from classic to VPC. Um, and if you look at their environment, they have um, 100,000 plus instances. Um, they had numerous services. And more interestingly is numerous teams, dozens of teams, and each team had their own schedule and their, their own pipeline. So when they wanted to move, um, was they could not align the teams to move all at the same time. Um, so, so the approach they took was they basically looked at the, the type of applications. They start off with their non-critical applications. They moved those first, um, and then and they had to build a few tools because in an environment where you have uh, 100,000 plus instances, there's a lot of tools. So they, they had to work through, a, uh, there's some work from a tooling perspective, and that's where they start also with the non-critical applications. This gave them some learnings that, and, and in, in the, they, were, they leveraged a lot of the features that we talked about here, both on the classic link side as well as on the VPC side, um, which helped them do their migration. Um, here's a graph that actually shows the, the actual migration in terms of instances. Um, I'll leave you guys with this one data point with Netflix. In six months, they migrated all of their instances. Um, if Just looking at the sheer number of instances they migrated and the time it took for them to migrate, you, they, what they were effectively doing was in every two and a half minutes, they were migrating one classic instance to VPC in six months. Two and a half minutes is one instance. That's the magnitude of... Uh, instances that they had to migrate. And one thing that really helped them, and I think if you, if, if you guys uh, have a chance, I would recommend you guys taking a look at their, uh, their session as well. It's how they, they talk in detail about how they leverage pretty much all the features that we talked about today, in the last 12 months. They leverage those features to help them migrate from classic to VPC. Right, with that, um, please do complete your evaluations. Um, and also, these are some of the other related sessions that probably would be helpful for you guys. That questions.